Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. Vision, the power of a clear vision. We talk a lot about vision on the show. And my guest today is leading an organization that has sought to create a clear vision for not only their work and their organization, but for helping to foster holistic, healthy villages throughout the world. My guest today is Justin Arducci, and he's the CEO of LifeWater International. It's a faith-based organization that deals with clean water. Uh, Justin left his job actually at Boeing and took over at LifeWater when his financial viability was in actual doubt. Now it's grown over three times over the last five years, and it's launched a bold new initiative to revolutionize the way donors track the impact of their gifts. I think you're going to enjoy what Justin has to say and all that he's doing to provide clean water around the world. Enjoy today's show. Justin, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for calling in from California today. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. I'd like to start with giving a stat to my listeners here. Every 60 seconds, a child dies from preventable waterborne diseases, as your website states. Many of these unsafe water sources are in the remote and rural corners of the world. Give us a quick overview of the water crisis that you see that we face right now globally, and what are you doing about it? Yeah, um, stats stats like this are pretty sobering. So um, when you think about the magnitude of the problem, you know, every 60 seconds a child dying from preventable waterborne disease. It's, uh, it's the equivalent of four 747s full of children crashing every single day. And if that were to happen in our, air, in our um, air, airlines business, would, something would change, right? But for these rural kids, it's not, it's not the same magnitude. And so we're dealing with a, a crisis on our hands, but it's sort of a silent crisis and it's out in these rural villages. And about 10% of our world's population does not have access to safe water. Um, but the real challenge on top of that is about a third of our world doesn't practice improved sanitation, which contributes to the rapid spread of disease. So when we talk about waterborne diseases, it's this combination of inadequate access to safe water, cleaning contaminated water, like a river or a lake or something like that, and then um, unsafe practices that sort of perpetuate waterborne diseases, so um, fecal moving around uh, from people's hands to their food to their mouth, um, flies moving around carrying human waste and making people sick. So there's sort of two different things going on when we think about waterborne disease beyond just you know safe water or water wells, which I think is what people typically think of. You know, it's always interesting to find out why people do what they do and the motivation to get into a nonprofit uh, role like the executive director. Um, you, I understand, left a good job at Boeing in order to do something about the water crisis. And what I found particularly interesting about your personal story was regarding the nonprofit you lead, LifeWater International, is that you almost lost your son to a waterborne disease. Uh, what can you tell us about that event and how did it influence you to do what you're doing now with LifeWater? So when when my wife and I started thinking about growing a family, we um, we adopted a child, and um, we were told he was very healthy, and we brought him home, and it turns out he was not very healthy. We went through 
uh, about 50 diapers uh, that he had some really bad diarrhea. I talk about diarrhea a lot, Rob. I'm just letting you know that. So let your listeners know that well, this will be something very common that comes up. But um, he had this rampant diarrhea and it was dehydrating him and he was really lethargic. And we got him home and I sort of handed him to my wife and he sort of, he was one at the time and just sort of limped. It was like a, like a, he didn't have life to him. And so we were very, very concerned and couldn't figure out what was going on. And took him to the hospital right away and ran all these tests. And it turns out he has Giardia, which is a waterborne disease. And it um, it's something easily preventable, uh, but it does take lives of children every single day. And so I think it's one thing to deal with statistics, and it's another thing to deal with that um, sort of firsthand thing. So every time I see him, he's 11 now. I, and he's thriving. You know, I think of uh, life that maybe wouldn't be that way. And it's a pretty stark reminder for the work that we still have to do every single day when I wake up and see him. Um, but the Boeing part's interesting because I think our sector, nonprofits in general, are becoming more professional, and there's a lot we can learn from business. There's also a lot business can learn from nonprofits. But I think um, that experience really helped influence how we do what we do here at LifeWater and how we um, organize our activities and the metrics we look at and the way that we uh, run our run our organization. Um, a bit more results-oriented than I think maybe would be if, if I hadn't had that experience. So those two things, I think, contribute to my interests and love of this job and what we do at LifeWater. Well, Justin, we've had some great nonprofits on this show. For example, we've had Charity Water, we've had Malaria No More, and other organizations that deal with um, various challenging issues in the developing world, similar to LifeWater. Now, how do you separate yourself? Uh, because you're working in the same space, if you will, because of you focusing on clean water. How does LifeWater set itself apart from the other organizations that we've had on the show, for example, in order to effectively fundraise on the one hand, but also to provide unique solutions to these critical problems? It's an interesting question because I think um, there's there's this weird reality that it seems like there's a lot of noise, but there's not actually a lot of giving toward these causes. Uh, last year, I think less than 5% of giving in the United States was directed toward international causes. So I, I don't get the sense that we're competing with one another. I think that there are a lot of players, and when there are different people who are um, good at certain things, we actually can learn a lot from each other and contribute um, in those ways. So I don't know. I very rarely come across someone who's trying to decide between us and another water organization, and if that is the case, you know, we don't – we don't sort of have a territorial stance. I don't think any of us who are in the water world would say that we're sort of competing with one another because the problem is so big. Um, one thing that's unique about us is we actually own the entire vertical. What, and what I mean by that is we fundraise and we implement um, and have staff that manage that all the way through. And that's actually pretty unique. Um, most of uh, some, most organizations either are good at fundraising and then they work with partners to implement or are good with partners and have someone else do the fundraising. Um, so we, we actually have the whole entire vertical, which allows us to control quality and consistency throughout. What we're telling donors is actually happening on the ground, and we can ensure that's happening because we manage the entire value chain. Um, so I think that is pretty unique in our, in our um, setup here at LifeWater. We always love hearing about stories uh, of what you're actually doing in the field. And so give us an example of a recent water project that you've overseen. Where was the project and what have the results been so far? Yeah, so results matter, right? And um, the way we organize our projects and the way that we track results, I think, 
really is something that even donors could become more savvy about. You know, it's, it's one thing to put a water well in the ground. It's another thing to, to make sure that that water well is still providing water to the community three years after, five years after. And uh, we become so focused on outcomes, I think sometimes we miss, like, the, the bigger impact of these programs. So the one I'll share with you uh, try, tries to highlight what I'm talking about. We just finished uh, one project in southern Ethiopia in a region called West RC. It's sort of a highlands area. It's probably where a lot of people's coffee comes from, um, so they can associate that with uh, coffee-growing regions in Ethiopia. There were 35,000 people in the program. These are uh, subsistence farmers, mostly in the coffee trade. There were 100 water projects that were completed within this program serving those 35,000 people. Uh, we, we do work with every single school and do wash programs at the schools. Um, that's all good, well and good, but at the end of it, we do um, a survey to determine the change in behavior and the reduction of waterborne disease to see if what we did, those activities actually resulted in the outcomes that we want that improved uh, quality of life for the vulnerable child or, or their mother. And um, the results we actually got on this program were astounding. So the reduction of waterborne disease decreased 90% and the sustainability of the water sources is at 99%. So we had less than 1% failure rate on those water sources at the end of at the end of three years. So that's our, our benchmarks aren't that high. Usually we don't sort of get those high levels of efficacy, but those results are really good. Almost 100% elimination of waterborne disease and their um, water resources are still working. There's a whole bunch of other things we look at, um, you know, income increases, uh, money spent on healthcare decreasing, um, girls' attendance increasing, uh, a number of those sorts of factors, and we have really smart people here at our head office who track all of those. But the key for us is taking an assessment at the beginning and then at the end of the program and not just looking at, you know, how many wells did we drill or how many kids were taught lessons, but, like, ultimately what did all that activity result in? And the only way you can really do that is if you do a baseline survey and then come back at the end and do a post-program evaluation and ask really um, similar and critical questions and have someone who understands statistics actually analyze that information and turn it into useful stuff. So we're really happy with those results and, and uh, would like to see that level continue in all of our programs. Hey everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Show. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you are aware of a whole group of other interviews with fascinating guests that I've previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org, and there you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I think you'll really enjoy those interviews. Now, I also want to make sure you knew about a new feature. Um, we want to give you more content, and we'd like to get that information to you. And all you have to do is give us your email. When you go to that website, you can put your email address in that first box you'll see on the front page, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. In addition to some great content, you'll see the latest uh, podcast shows. It will be actually sent right to your inbox, and that way you'll never miss any of the great content on this show. The other thing I'll mention to you is if you have questions or comments or you'd like to be on the show, do not hesitate to email me. I'd love to hear from you. Just do that through our website, my email, rob at ccofpc.org. Well, thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. That's fantastic. And I noticed on your website and a little bit of the material I've read about your programs, um, you have a unique approach to local solutions. Um, so talk about how your approach to local solution is improving your results, uh, both the impact and long-term sustainability of your projects. 
Yeah. So we sort of couch ourselves as community development workers that focus on one issue, with, which is the water and sanitation issues of rural communities. And what we mean by community development is, is local people participating in the change process themselves. It's giving, um, you know, subsistence farmers agency, the ability to make changes in their lives and in their communities, and maybe for the first time realizing that they have that power or that ability. So um, when we designed our model, we call it our vision of a healthy village, we designed it to start with um, small wins that the community could achieve. So um, it's a bit of a gamification theory. So you know how like when you um, set little goals on your Fitbit or whatever and it starts small and then you, you achieve that, those, that step count and then you want to keep going. Well, we, we sort of took that theory and applied it to these rural villages where families could start having these achievable wins. So they could see how to build a latrine for themselves and then use the materials that they had available and build that latrine. And then we would celebrate that win with them. And then they would set up a hand-washing station. We call it tippy-tap. And, and there's this, uh, there's six things that they can do with their household. And then they become a healthy home. And then they, there's a big celebration for the healthy homes, and we track those. And then the ultimate uh, prize for the community is this healthy village. And so the whole community has to work together to make sure every home is healthy and that they um, do all of these little steps, and ultimately they become a healthy village. And so we created this sort of like positive peer pressure environment where the community started taking ownership of um, their health and their neighbor's health and achieving these small wins, and it's worked quite well. The other thing that we did was um, we had a cost share requirement. So um, we use water as the sort of uh, incentive for the communities to become healthy and to do all this stuff. Um, but there is a cost-sharing requirement, so they have to share the initial capital expense of the water source and fund um, a maintenance fund for the repairs down the road. And that does take some time, so we've sort of made the project cycle longer so that they have time to really save the money and those mobilize those resources, um, which they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. So they may have to go through two coffee seasons, for example, to save money um, in order to, to cost share for that well. And then once they do, there's more of a sense of ownership because they have um, skin in the game. And it's not we're not doing that to be paternalistic. We're doing it because it does promote buy-in, and the results are much better when communities cost share and participate in the program than when they don't. So uh, we're patient, um, we're persistent, we, we design the program for small wins, and it's all community-driven. Uh, we, are, we are just facilitators and catalysts in the process. That's fascinating. You know what I find interesting is you talk a lot about offering not just health, but hope as well. And we talk a lot about on the show about clear mission statements and being very clear about what your organization does and how you communicate that to both donors and to the larger community. So talk about that a little bit. Um, hope is hard to measure, right? But how do you seek to integrate providing both health and hope to those you serve? I mean, what does providing hope look like for LifeWater? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, we're faith-based, we're a Christian organization, and uh, we made a decision a while ago when we updated our program model that um, we would we would sort of live that Christ-centered value. That's our it's our first value. We want people that they engage with to know that God loves and cares for them and wants their children and families and villages to thrive. And so that's an important part of our identity. But secondarily, and even I would think more importantly. Um, we believe in the role of the local church and the local church being active in their community to reach vulnerable people, people in the margins, lost people, and to provide 
real hope that we believe is found in the gospel in Jesus Christ. And so there are places uh, that we target where local churches aren't active, and we, we develop church partnerships with existing churches to help um, maybe allow that church to expand into regions where they, they aren't. So for us, a true criteria for success is that there is a local church that's active in the community that's helping meet needs of vulnerable children and families and that they're equipped to do that. Um, we do actually provide some theological training. We work with local Christian colleges to provide theological training for pastors that have low capacity. So we're not trying to usurp the church, but come in as a parachurch entity, uplift it, help um, help it reach more people, and uh, be able to have some more tools in its toolkit than just preaching to people who are dying because they're sick from things that they can prevent. And so we can equip them to, to do that, and that's part of our core DNA. So we actually build that into our log frames. Uh, what is our church mobilization strategy for the West Darcy region? And we have a church planning partner and our, our church mobilization partner. They have specific activities, and we have specific activities, and then we track those as well. And there's some qualitative and quantitative ways you can measure hope, but for us, um, you know, the local church being active in the community where we're serving is really important. That's fascinating. Well, and you talk about a vision for a healthy village. In fact, if you go to your website, um, you've actually got a little picture of what a healthy village looks like. Uh, I like the fact you have a vision uh, kind of spelled out and both illustrated too, because we talk again a lot on the show a lot about having a clear vision that motivates people, that kind of gets people excited about what you're doing. Um, and I like your vision of a healthy village. It seems like it's very holistic uh, and is very impactful when it comes to communicating your mission and your vision uh, combined. So talk about your vision for a healthy village. I mean, what does it look like? Spell it out for us a little bit. Illustrate it. Uh, are there specific elements unique to LifeWater that stand out to you? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I actually stole this concept from Food for the Hungry, who had a vision of community um, that I interacted with maybe 20 years ago. And I thought the, I thought it was a very compelling idea. Like, what is the I, what is the outcome that you're looking for? Um, in all of this work, and you sort of deal at the high level with statistics, and then you get into programmatics, but at the end of it all, you know, what does it really look like? And so we, de we designed this healthy village um, to have a number of key elements, but this most basic um, concept is that there's healthy children that are growing up in a village that's thriving. Um, and it starts with, it, it basically engages households, schools, local churches, and governments all working together to eliminate waterborne diseases and to allow children to go to school, health clinics to not be overrun by, by people who are sick with waterborne diseases, governments to run and maintain water systems as they were a public utility, and for local churches to sort of be the hub, to give life and purpose and meaning and hope to the community. So we have um, specific outcomes for each of those. So what is a healthy school? What is a healthy home? What is a healthy village? We're about to come up with a healthy church model, so a church that um, is able to teach about waterborne disease, is able to reach out to vulnerable communities in their neighborhoods, um, and we're equipping local pastors to do that. And then a healthy government, so how does a, how does a healthy facility manage um, its waste? You know, in Ethiopia or Uganda or anywhere we work, health facilities may not have safe water. Um, there's a birthing center in one of our Ethiopia communities that gives birth to 100 hundred children a year and it doesn't have latrines or safe water and so we have to work with the structures and systems where people are use or are looking to government to provide those services but the, the government just doesn't have the capacity to do that um, and we have to help fill that gap so 
Um, that's part of it. And then the other side is sort of how do you measure this stuff? So when we designed this vision of a healthy village, we set forth a lot of um, monitoring and evaluation or d data analysis. And so we we literally track each household and its progress toward becoming a healthy home. Each village with its progress of achieving um, all of the standards to become a healthy village, each school the same way. And what it allows us to do is to look at trends and see where we're really making strides and where we're lagging behind and um, help uh, adjust the resourcing right away rather than waiting multiple years after a program ends and figuring out we had a real issue in a, in a community and didn't do anything about it. So when we launched this Healthy Village program, we did it with um, a, a data backbone. So all of our field staff have an app where they collect data all the time. And we have a few people here at headquarters that look at that data in real time and allow us to see where we're really succeeding and even more importantly where we're falling behind and maybe where we need to modify our strategy because the communities just aren't motivated or they just aren't participating or whatever. And we can do that right away and talk to our field staff and, and adjust that strategy in real time. Um, the same with sustainability data. So basically we've sort of taken this rural village concept and made sure that we're tracking key things and continuously adjusting and improving our program each and every day based on what we're seeing um, really take root and what we're seeing that isn't effective. So right now we're doing that in about 600 villages um, and we're serving about 200,000 people with that healthy village model. And we're hoping to continue to grow it. Well, you know, it's fascinating. One of the things that we talked about with Charity Water, they talked about these real-time instruments that they put in through technology so that people could literally go online here in America and see exactly what's going on with the water well, say in Ghana or wherever they are putting water wells in. Sounds like you've got some similar technology. Talk a little bit more about that. How does it work? And have you seen an impact in terms of either engagement uh, with donors and or just people being more um, kind of invested, if you will, in what you do because they can see it in real time? I think, I think there will be a day where we, where we uh, all are enumerating information or collecting information using technology, um, whether it's on the water resource or with phones. So our system is actually based out of the Netherlands, and it's called Flow. It's a system that other water organizations use, and it allows the field staff to have custom questions for whatever they're doing. So if we're building a, a water well, um, the engineers have a set of questions that allow them to do quality assurance. It also allows us to capture data, so we and there's a and we can customize those from here, and it flows into their phone through the app when they're connected to the internet. The other nice piece on it is that we can collect information in the field. So say that we're standing in front of a healthy home in a village, um, we collect the GPS coordinates, we capture a picture of the family, they go through the checklist, we know how many people live in the home, uh, we know when they became a healthy home. We have we have all of this data, and so you can begin doing geospatial stuff and and start looking at heat maps and seeing where all the healthy homes are happening and where they're not and where we might need to put another staff member. So you can – it's one thing to have data, but it's another thing to, to do something with it that helps you improve your programs and also bring transparency, which I think is the other piece of what you're talking about. Uh, it's not enough for us to just put an annual report together and share how many water wells we completed and their sustainability. I think there's some level of uh, dynamic information sharing that people are expecting um, and live results are part of that. And so uh, we actually built out a whole new tab on our website that uses Microsoft Power BI. We have so much data, we have to use business intelligence software to do it. So you could actually go to our website right now, which I would encourage people to do, and look at the live results. And we put the good and bad stuff up there 
um, just to increase transparency and trust, which I think is what people are looking for. Um, we don't necessarily trust institutions anymore. I think we we want as donors to know that the the person on the end is actually being served well, and not just that the people we're giving our money to are using it well. And that differentiation is something that we as as nonprofits have to come up with a better way of being transparent. And I think sharing information um, in real time is is a good way of doing that. So um, we also launched this platform recently where people can actually donate directly to a program and get updates as the program progresses. So we use that same technology, and instead of us just looking at it here, we democratized it and allowed you know a donor who gave five bucks to a project in Ethiopia to get real-time updates, you know, like a foundation would have if they gave us a hundred thousand um, dollars. And I think that is a very healthy way of sharing information with donors as well. Now, very fascinating. So I know for my listeners, they may want to find out more information. They may want to get involved. So where would you send them if they want to find out, you know, more about you, more about the organization, and what you do to provide clean water? Visit us at lifewater.org, or uh, to connect with me personally, just go to LinkedIn and. Um, Write uh, my name, Justin Narducci, N-A-R-D-U-C-C-I. And in the note, just let me know that you con- you're connecting through the podcast, and I would love to connect with anyone on there. Well, that's great. Well, I'm guest again today has been Justin Narducci. He is the CEO of LifeWater International, a faith-based clean water organization that is really has a vision for creating healthy villages that are as holistic as possible. Justin, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for what you're doing to provide clean water all over the world. It's a, a really important job, and I know it's not easy, uh, but you're giving everything you have. So thanks for all you do and keep up the good work. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate the time. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. And I've just started adding a new element to this show that I'm calling bonus content, for lack of a better name. In fact, if you have a better name, send me another better name. I'll come up with something different. But the idea is this. I would like to share with you what I'm learning, uh, what I'm hearing from you, or a topic that's being discussed among other leaders in the nonprofit sector. I would love to get your feedback, though, on this and your ideas. I mean, perhaps there's something you'd like me to share, uh, something you'd like to share on the show, uh, or topics you'd like me to cover. Uh, Feel free to contact me through LinkedIn. Uh, You can reach me through Facebook, uh, Rob Harder on both of those, and or email me at rob at ccofpc.org. Again, rob at ccofpc.org. All right, now on to today's bonus content. Recently, Darren Walker, who's the president of the Ford Foundation, uh, wrote an article uh, and shared about the need for philanthropy to change in the way donors view the nonprofit organizations they support. This is what he says about the new way of approaching philanthropy in an article about Ford's build program. He says we need to be about, quote, placing meaningful resources in the hands of those closest to the problems, backing their visionary efforts over time, listening and learning at every step of the journey. This is the philanthropy we need today. He goes on to say, we must trust those we fund and fund them adequately to do what they believe is best, not what we think is best. And this means putting ourselves in the shoes of prospective grantees and communities, treating them like partners rather than contractors, and entrusting organizations with long-term general support funding and project grants that provide adequate overhead. I think it's some critical things that he has to say. I'm curious to see what you think about that. Um, I believe personally that one of the biggest struggles that we have as nonprofit leaders is to ask for adequate funding for our programs and our overhead. I mean, think about it. I mean, no one likes to ask for overhead expenses, you know, but having staff, resources, and the structural support to maintain effective programs, I believe is essential. We have to have that. And most donors get that. I think we just need to be more honest and upfront with those needs. 
And if we do see our donors truly as partners, rather than just as people that we're having a contract agreement with, our ability to share ideas and solutions to society's biggest issues will improve dramatically. Well, I'd love to hear from you. Send me your thoughts. You can connect with me, Rob Harder, on LinkedIn or Facebook, or you can visit the nonprofitleadershippodcast.org website and email me from there. Well, that's all for today. And until next time, keep making your world better. I want to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you are wondering how to find out where we are, check us out on iTunes by typing Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help us expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as we can. You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.